So we go for refuge in the direction of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I say we go in the direction because I think if it were just as easy as going for refuge and being done with it, we probably wouldn't have to come back and do it again every time. So for me, I feel like I just set my heart in that direction. So I actually want to start by uh, acknowledging May Day. Today is the 1st of May, and it's a day of international labor solidarity. And the holiday actually has really interesting roots, pre-industrial roots, um, uh, roots in pagan and earth-based spirituality. And it's a holiday of liberation. It's a celebration of the human capacity for liberation and the potential for collective liberation. So I celebrate that. And I'd like to welcome you all into uh, this inquiry that is really always coming up for me. And it's this question of what is practice actually? I'm always asking that question. And of course, practice is many things. Um, sometimes it's really easy to practice. Uh, sometimes it's light. Sometimes it's really difficult and it's a strain that takes every ounce of effort and energy that we have. Sometimes we use this method, sometimes we use that method. We're always adapting, we're always responding to circumstances. Uh, Chosen Roshi has this wonderful image of Jizo Bodhisattva as a general practitioner in the medical sense, but in really in, in an all-encompassing sense of uh, just responding to every possible situation with whatever's needed. And so we're constantly developing new skills, new abilities to respond. And these are the many arms of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. You see the images with the thousand hands, each of them wielding a different instrument to uh, to do work in the world, some kind of work, spiritual work, which is not separate from the work we do with our bodies. So practice is many things, and yet at the same time, there's something that unifies all of the practices that we do. And I want to suggest that actually all of these practices, or at least many of the practices we do, are practices of oneness. That fundamentally, these are practices that uh, are enactments of oneness. 
or non-separation. The practice of gratitude, for example, uh, this practice of receiving, practice of being totally open and permeable and uh, accepting, uh, letting go of barriers and accepting. Practice of generosity, practice of total giving, uh, no separation between self and other, but offering everything we have. Forgiveness is a practice of letting go of whatever we're holding on to, whatever is burdening us, letting go of that, letting go of the stories we have about things that have happened, people that we've had difficulties with. Practices of atonement or even of confession, confession, atonement, uh, at-one-ment. We're dropping into this open-heartedness, again, letting go of burdens. Embodiment, breath, concentration, all of these practices, these are practices of absorption, being the breath completely, entering completely into it. Any practice where we're fully absorbed in the sensory experience is a practice of oneness. And really, this is what the word, the Sanskrit word, samadhi, means, literally, is uh, togetherness, coming together, bringing together. Um, And this is true of the, the practices we do during service, chanting, bowing, the gasho, hand mudra, of bringing together opposites, enchanting, resonating with the vibration of our surroundings. And of course, the practices of the divine abodes, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, all practices of becoming one. And those of you who are in the precepts class and really um, anyone who has studied the precepts in any context knows that uh, those are also practices of oneness, especially if you're familiar with the Bodhidharma precepts. Uh, All of the ethical precepts in their essence, are practices of non-separation, letting go of grasping, letting go of clinging to self and other. And so ethical practice is also a practice of oneness. This reminds me of the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, the great completion tradition, where there's an extensive vocabulary of terms that are basically just synonyms for the same thing. There's synonyms for Dzogchen itself, for the the wholeness and completeness of reality. And these terms are used in many different ways, but really they're all just pointing to the nature of reality itself, the nature of reality itself. And 
because of that, the Dzogchen teachings can seem, on the one hand, extremely complex and ornate and elaborate and having all of these layers, but at the same time, they're utterly simple. They're all pointing just to this basic reality. So often when we think about this diversity of practices, we hierarchize them. We think of them as uh, some of them being advanced, some of them being uh, for beginners, some of them uh, having more or less efficacy, or some of them being very deep and others being kind of more superficial. Uh, but really, they share this common core. And so we have all of these limiting beliefs about their potential to open us up. But it may be that they all have fundamentally uh, radical potential to open us up, uh, to open up our uh, closed grip of self. Of course, there are different medicines for different occasions. We have to respond, we have to adapt, be aware of our surroundings. And if there's anger, then the antidote of loving kindness is brought in. If there's uh, anxiety or restlessness, the antidote of calm abiding is brought in. So we have these different medicines for different situations, and yet they all come back to the same place right here. The important thing in all of this is that we practice. That's really what makes all the difference. We might have some idea about non-duality or some philosophical concept of oneness, but that's not really what this is about. And uh, actually, that really just gets in the way. Uh, but we don't have to let that happen. Um, so, you know, if we have this concept of oneness and we think about these different practices, sometimes we're kind of judging the practices in relation to this concept of oneness. But uh, if we do that, we're selling ourselves short and we're really missing uh, what is essential in the practices. The practices are pointing to just this. Just this is it. Just this suchness. And this suchness is itself ineffable. So the word suchness or the word oneness, that's just a finger pointing at the moon. Maybe the moon itself is just another pointer, too. So these are all uh, not to be taken as fixed concepts, but they're pointing us. There are teachings in the Zen tradition that say that just being wholehearted is enough that that is the way. This is the message of Dogen Zenji's Bendua, for example. Hogan Roshi likes to refer to Master Lin Qi, ninth century Chinese master, as teaching a practice of just being fully engaged, uh, 
Hogan Roshi likes to say they didn't even practice seated meditation in Lin Chi's monastery. It was just a matter of being fully engaged. And that kind of wholeheartedness is common to all of these practices if we engage it. So the suggestion here is that just practicing, just doing any practice wholeheartedly collapses the basic duality because that duality exists only from the point of view of the thinking mind. It exists only in thought. And when we practice, we're stepping beyond thought. So we have these methods, and yet we also have to be curious and aware. We have to recognize what we're experiencing, the nature of what we're experiencing. We have to be open to that recognition. We have to be open to seeing what we don't yet see. So I have to somehow acknowledge that there's something that I'm actually not seeing about reality. And being open to realizing what that is, is an essential part of practice. And to some extent, we also have to know what we're looking for. And this is really, it's a way of looking. But the teachings guide us here, and this is really the purpose of pointing out instructions. Really the purpose of all of the the teachings, all of the discourses, and all of the texts, and it can be really helpful to study those texts or uh, all of the uh, sacred words that we have collected in our chant books and that flow through us when we come together. All of that is orienting us, uh, helping to prime us for a realization that is really beyond words. But the teachings help us. They, they orient the intellect. They, they discipline and yoke the intellect to the possibility of this realization. Um, and so when we, when we engage in study, when we engage in philosophical inquiry, when we chant the chants, we're, we're allowing our conceptual mind to be shaped in that way. In a way, we're allowing our conceptual mind to be put in its proper place. In the, in the larger order of things and in relation to our deeper aspiration. The basic duality is the duality of subject and object, self and other. And I invite you to ask now, Just be aware and notice, is that duality really there in your experience? Can you find anything in your experience that is a division between self and other And take a look, where, where do you find that? Do you find it? And 
If so, really sincerely, look, what is it? Where is it? What does it consist of? Is it static? Is it moving? Is it something that you're doing? Is it something that's being done to you? Is it in your mind? Is it in your body? Where are you positioned in relation to it? Where is everything else in relation to you, in relation to it, this division? So when we're talking about these practices as practices of oneness, we're talking about recognizing the non-separateness of subject and object, recognizing on some level that we can't really find that division in our experience. Or if we do seem to find it, it's quite murky and it seems quite porous or it starts to elude us as soon as we try to identify it. And yet, we're constantly referring to self and other. We're constantly positioning ourselves in opposition and positioning ourselves as somehow separate and positioning things in general as separate from one another. So, um, what is that? The teachings in the essence traditions, in the Zen tradition, in the Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions, tell us that recognizing this non-separateness is not a matter of some state that we have to attain. It's not something that has to be somehow achieved or contrived in our experience. Uh, It's just a matter of recognizing actually how things already are. And I think we, you know, have little tastes of that all the time. And some of the time, maybe that's just really obvious to us that actually there's no division. Actually, there's nothing over here on this side. That there's just one side, there's just everything that's happening, and it's just one unified happening. And sometimes that is clear to us, and then, what, we're just back in the convention, or I don't know what it is, the dream? I think we, we really just have to look for it. Where is that separateness? And... Maybe it's, it's the distress that we experience that drives us further into that inquiry, engages our hearts more deeply in that inquiry of, well, what, what is going on here? What is this, actually? What is this suffering? What's wrong? What's the matter? Is it in the body? Is it in the mind? Is it... Is it just language? True oneness, 
means also overcoming the duality of oneness and manyness. So to really do the practice of oneness, we have to let go of oneness. And again, this means going beyond thought, letting go of thought. The true oneness is non-conceptual. It's inconceivable. And it's not exotic, but it's, it's too close to be conceptualized. It's, it's too right here to be pointed to, even. And it's not a thing. It's not one thing, it's not many things. The idea of one and many exists only as an idea. It exists only for the thinking mind. So we're seeing that in practice, this is a a kind of categorical shift that we're making. We're, We're usually operating out of the thinking mind, the information processing system. And maybe a lot of the time, or maybe all the time, we don't even realize it because we're just in that, like the matrix, and we think that's just reality. But when we're talking about practice, we're talking about actually shifting out of that or unplugging that and waking up to a different way of seeing And that way of seeing is not conceptual. And so all of these words are just I guess it's just the best we can do. We've got to do something. We've got to We want to be free, don't we? Being one with everything means flowing continuously. It means adapting continuously to a constantly changing world. So it means transforming. It means responding as needed. It means being very flexible. It means being available. It's bodhisattva activity, liberated activity. We had this wonderful reading that Myoyu offered this morning at breakfast from Shoto Harada Roshi about liberation, how sitting helps us to touch a freedom that is natural to us and then opens us up to live spontaneously and to respond and to be of service and to respond to difficult circumstances and And it's a way, in a way, it's when we're nobody that we can really be available to be who we need to be for others. This 
is always a matter of appreciation, intimacy, connection, and openness. As a practice, it seems to require all of that. It's a practice of the heart. It means being open to the whole manifold of life. If we're talking about oneness, we're talking about everything. We're talking about including everything. We're talking about uh, living with the senses open, living with our bodies open to the influences of our environment, to other people, to pain, to pleasure. Um, Reality is open. It's the whole mandala of sensory experience. In the Vajrayana traditions, the tantric Buddhist traditions, there are an array of teachings about about this openness to sensory reality, and often they invoke uh, deities, they invoke uh, mandalic representations of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, Uh, vast multitudes of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas representing all the different energies that comprise our world, and also representing qualities that are inherent in the mind itself, inherent in awareness itself. Uh, We're taught that there are qualities inherent to awareness, inherent to the Buddha mind, And that's what many of these teachings are depicting. So practicing oneness, we're practicing with the energies of life. Moment after moment, we come back to these practices that I mentioned at the beginning, the practices of the heart, come back to practices of gratitude, practices of generosity, of forgiveness, letting go, living by vow. Practice of trust. We talk about affirming faith in mind. That's one of the most famous poems of awakening in the Chan Zen tradition. We usually usually chant it during Sashin. It's also, the title is also translated as the Song of Trusting the Heart. In all of these practices, really we, we are called upon to trust. And we say, trusting the heart, well, what, what is this heart? It's not one thing and it's not many. It's where practice happens, though, the heart. Sometimes called the heart center. It's one of those synonyms from the Dzogchen tradition, synonym for the here and now, the heart center. 
This is where we find ourselves when we let go of thinking. Dwelling in the heart is a matter of compassion and it's a matter of bodhicitta, the the natural wish for all beings to be free from suffering. Hogan Roshi calls this the heart's aspiration. We can't do any of this ourselves. None of this is a matter of personal accomplishment. So we practice with the trust that life gives us exactly what is needed, allow ourselves to be opened up. We don't have control. Things don't always go our way. We also have to have the trust that we can practice in all circumstances. This is very powerful. Whatever our state of mind, whatever the conditions are, whatever challenge we're facing, trusting that practice is available in this moment, that that there is an authentic practice that can be done now, even in this whatever situation, very difficult situation. So when we're practicing living by vow, living by bodhicitta, this is the all-accomplishing practice. Jizo Bodhisattva carries the wish-fulfilling jewel. So it's not a matter of a personal agenda or some personal goal that we have, but living by vow is everything. Everything that we meet in our lives is the path. Everything is the path. Everything that we experience is the practice. And that's the wish-fulfilling jewel. It doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to get fried ice cream and we're going to get to ride on a dragon if we want to. Maybe it does, but it would be great. You could even do both at the same time. But it, it means that whatever, whatever it is, that is the fulfillment. When we live like this, I think we align our individual lives with the larger vow of the universe, with the evolutionary movement that's inherent in the cosmos itself. I think we align ourselves with that, and that includes the earth. And so it's something very powerful and very important for us. The practice of being one with our own hearts, the practice of being one with the earth, being one with nature, and being one with all of creation. Mm -hmm. 